this particular attack, this cyber attack, hasn't been particularly focused on the NHS. It's been a worldwide attack. It's affected 100 countries, different organizations. The speed of the intrusion and its spread was unprecedented. It took less than 45 seconds to bring down the network of a large Ukrainian bank. It is time to stop being naive when it comes to cybersecurity. Even size doesn't help you. Stephen Hawking once said that, I think computer viruses should count as life. I think it says something about human nature that the only form of life we have created so far is purely destructive. We've created life in our own image. You're listening to The Impact, Coronavirus and Organised Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. For 12 weeks, this special edition weekly podcast is looking at how the ongoing coronavirus is impacting on organised crime around the world and how the illicit economy may affect our ability to respond to the virus. We'll be delving into the ones and zeros and talking about hacking, ransomware, malware, phishing. It's cybercrime which is definitely on the rise during the pandemic. First, let's speak about something that is affecting hundreds of millions of people around the world, and that is working from home. Many of us are now working or studying online during the lockdown, but some analysts predict that even in the post-COVID world, we could see a permanent shift towards greater home or remote working. This is having a huge impact on cybersecurity, as people aren't as careful on their home networks as they are at work, and they just aren't as secure as a corporate network. So what kind of opportunity does this provide for cyber criminals? Here's Joe Tidy, the BBC's cybersecurity correspondent. Well, it's a huge opportunity because the hackers know that people are kind of the guards down a lot more because when you're at home, you're not in the work environment for a start. So you haven't got the work network internet. So for example, I'm using my home internet at the moment. And if I wanted to click on this link or that link, it would take me to wherever I want to go because it hasn't got the protections of, let's say, for example, the BBC network. So there are some websites I've tried to get onto in the past for research on the BBC network, and it hasn't let me because the BBC network has flagged it as being a potentially dangerous website, whether at the phishing website or inappropriate content, that sort of thing. But everyone's on their home networks, aren't they? So these sorts of things aren't blocked. That's one thing I think that hackers would, would be taking advantage of. And then, of course, there's the fact that you're downloading lots of programs that maybe you shouldn't be and you're not used to. I myself have downloaded a couple of programs that are workaround things, really. Normally, I use different programs at work for, for example, photo editing, that sort of thing. And I've had to really, really research whether or not this app is legitimate and isn't something that's going to steal my data or give me ransomware, that sort of thing. But are people doing those sorts of checks out there in the wild? Probably not. Something that's really come into focus over the past few weeks are video meeting apps and there's been a lot of talk around Zoom, which is a video conferencing app bringing people together from all over the world, both for work and social events, and which has been reporting at a rate of 2 million new users a day. But more specifically, there has been privacy concerns in relation to Zoom's encryption. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Zoom has gone from being something that you know you use occasionally in business meetings. I used to hate Zoom because you would get these these links to conference meetings and stuff, and it's oh, I've got to download the app, real hassle, blah blah blah. Now 
Zoom is everywhere. It's gone from 10 million meetings a day to 200 million meetings a day during this pandemic. And because of that, it's opened up the app and the service to so much more scrutiny. People are looking at it saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, how safe and secure is this app? Who's behind it? And all these questions are being asked. And what's been discovered in the last three weeks by, you know, journalists and researchers is that there are lots of failings in Zoom's service. And and the company itself has said, look, we are going to spend the next 90 days. We're not going to develop the product at all in terms of new features and things. We're doing what they call a product freeze, and we're going to work specifically on security and privacy. The main things seem to be around this phrase called Zoom bombing, which is where anyone can join any meeting if it isn't password protected, and many meetings aren't. Zoom is all about being as smooth and easy as possible. And because of that, it makes it so all you have to do is click on a link and suddenly you're inside the meeting. So all you need is that meeting ID and not many meetings are out there that that have been protected. So you're getting people who are joining meetings. There was a really nasty story, for example, about a, a bar mitzvah and there was a, it was over Zoom because of the coronavirus pandemic and people were joining and they were becoming part of the meeting and then flashing up really nasty anti-Semitic words and phrases and, you know, really upsetting those people. So that, that's Zoom bombing. But then there's kind of some even more serious situations whereby Zoom has not been truthful about the encryption that it has. It has said it has end-to-end encryption, which means that if I'm talking to you right now on a, on a secure video service, so for example, we could be on a WhatsApp video, we know that is end-to-end encrypted. That means that the only people, the only devices that are able to decrypt and unscramble all the ones and zeros going between us is my device and your device. So it's my end, your end encrypted. No one else can see that, even WhatsApp itself. Whereas Zoom has said it's end-to-end encrypted, and it's not. It's end-to-end encrypted. What it means by that is... The Zoom server supplying you and the Zoom server supplying me, they are encrypted together, so only those two can see it. That doesn't mean that Zoom can't see it. Do you see what I mean? So it's a difference between being end-to-end encrypted by the user and end-to-end encrypted by the service. And lots of people have been very upset about the fact that Zoom has not been truthful around that. And also there's this issue that came out out of um, some research by Citizen Lab, which showed that despite many, many meetings, or rather most meetings, being in, let's say, North America... That traffic and those keys for that service, for that uh, encryption between the two, is going through China. A lot of people, of course, because of the politics, are very unhappy with the fact that the Chinese state may have some sort of control over whether or not those server details and that data could be shared with the Communist Party. So Zoom is in a, in a very tricky spot. Their platform is skyrocketing in popularity, but they are having to really, really look at the service, go back to basics in some regards, to try and rectify some of the wrongs here. With misinformation, scams, phishing emails rife at the moment, you've set up a website called coronaphishing.com. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, as cybersecurity reporter at the BBC, you know, I get sent press releases from cybersecurity companies all the time about the latest phishing scams that piggyback off news events but about three or four weeks ago maybe five weeks ago I started getting these emails almost every single day saying look we found these phishing emails related to coronavirus and they came thick and fast so we did a piece on the BBC about it and then it wasn't enough really because we only covered maybe five of the examples and I was getting dozens so I thought right I'm going to make a website I'm going to keep it updated and that way if people want to they can if they get a dodgy email or if they think it's dodgy or maybe they're 
parents or grandparents get, get an email, then they can search through the website and they can see whether or not that email is an official coronavirus scam email because these are analysed by cybersecurity companies and we know they are dodgy. So the idea was to, to put as many of these as I could on the website and so far we're up to about 80 different known scams out there. And they really range from emails saying, here's a document, please download this document, it will save your life. This is from the World Health Organization. Of course, it's not. And what happens is victims are fooled into thinking that this is a legitimate document from the World Health Organization. They download the document, and it's not advice at all. What they're actually downloading is a bit of malicious software. For example, in this case I'm thinking of now, if you download it, you get something called the Agent Tesla Key Logger, which logs every single keystroke you make on your computer for that period of time that they're watching you, and it sends it back to the hackers. So that whatever website you visit, let's say you log into your email, they've got that. Log into your online banking, they've got that too. You know, really powerful, nasty software. And then we're seeing other ones, the kind of, I suppose the majority of them are what you call credential stealing attacks. And what they do is they say to you, here's an email from, let's say, your government in, in your country. And the one I'm thinking of is HMRC, the UK tax branch of the government. And it says, you know, because of coronavirus, we're giving everybody £200 tax rebate to help you get back on your feet. All you have to do is go onto this website, so you click through, and it looks just like the tax website of your country and it says input your financial details and we'll send you the money and of course what you're doing is you're inputting your financial details and you're giving them all to the hackers another one that i put on the website as well which is discovered by lots of different cybersecurity companies was ransomware named after the virus covid locker i think there was a the name of it and what this is is you know another website comes in from let's say it looks like it's from the cdc uh, the Centers for Disease Control, and you download this app that's meant to help you, you know, track the virus around the world. And again, you're not downloading that at all. You're downloading a malicious piece of software that locks your entire computer, and you have to pay them, you know, hundreds of dollars at a time to get all your files or access to your computer back. So these are the sorts of tactics we're seeing across the board, and it's happening all over the world. And some of these emails are being sent in batches of hundreds of thousands. Thank you very much, Joe Tidy, the BBC's cybersecurity correspondent. We all must be aware of the malware and ransomware attacks on our personal computers and hopefully we're all keeping our systems up to date and have security software that is protecting us from the nasty side of the internet. But what happens when cyber criminals unleash something larger that attacks real-world critical infrastructure? In May 2017, the WannaCry ransomware attack hit around 230,000 computers around the world, including the National Health Service in the UK, causing ambulances to be rerouted, tens of thousands of appointments had to be cancelled, and it cost the health service £92 million. And it cost the global economy an estimated US$4 billion. But it was a NotPetya cyber attack of 2017, the most devastating cyber attack in history, that cost the world's economy the most. It was first detected in Ukraine, but by the end of its terrible reign, it had spread across the globe and even brought down the entire IT network of the world's largest shipping conglomerate, Maersk, reportedly costing the company 300 million US dollars. 
As we've heard throughout this series of programs, healthcare systems are under extreme pressure at the moment due to COVID-19, which is why it was an ominous moment in early March when the University Hospital of Brno in the Czech Republic was hit by a ransomware attack, the very hospital that was treating those suffering from coronavirus. In the policy brief on COVID and cybercrime released this week by the GI, senior analyst Prem Mahadevan examines the increase of attacks on infrastructure and the role of cyber espionage in cybercrime. If you really look at it over the last half decade, attacks on critical infrastructure, civilian infrastructure have been rising. But it's just that they've not yet taken a life, directly at least. I mean, cybersecurity experts would say that we're no longer at a stage now where we can say that cyber criminals are just out to create a nuisance, but they won't really cross the threshold of doing something that would lead to the loss of life. So when it came to hospitals, there is this belief that hospitals are public buildings. They have to be open to members of the public. And the same mindset comes through in their IT infrastructure. They invest very poorly in computer security. The NHS, for instance, was targeted in a manner that could have been prevented had they been following the latest advice from Microsoft to update their computers. But unfortunately, they didn't. This is not unusual. It, it happens in many countries in the healthcare sector. You've written about how state-sponsored cybercrime groups are using this period of unique uncertainty to carry out espionage on government and corporate IT systems. Can you tell us about that? The most salient point that comes to mind is that actually what we call cybercrime today is perhaps an extension of cyber espionage. Originally, the tools that today's hackers use, criminal for-profit hackers, these tools were developed for intelligence purposes by governments. The vulnerability that WannaCry exploited back in 2017 was actually discovered by a leading intelligence agency, which then itself ended up getting hacked by someone else. And that vulnerability was then put out on the internet and a group of hackers picked it up and then weaponized it to launch the WannaCry attack. So cyber espionage is actually perhaps the base of cybercrime. It, it is the bedrock of it. Eventually, one of the reasons why I think it's still so easy to carry out cyber crimes is because if you really try to get into the mindset of many victims, they know that the computer in front of them is not going to blow up in their face if they click on a suspicious link. The personal consequences of cyber crimes are, are not that huge. I mean, if you really look at it, People who open these links often become part of an underworld of information where their data is stolen, it's harvested by malware and then sold on the internet. But they themselves may not end up out of pocket personally unless they fall for something like a, you know, a scam selling hand sanitizer or face masks or whatever. So the issue with cyber espionage, especially state-sponsored cyber espionage is that Eventually, government servants are still going to have the same behavioral tendencies as ordinary members of the public, particularly when they're removed from a professional setting and working at home. So we've seen a rise in quite sophisticated phishing campaigns that have been launched by advanced persistent threats. These are cyber threats which may or may not have government backing but they have shown a tendency to target defense and diplomatic installations as a way of stealing data from 
governments that uh, might be hostile to the country where the hackers are based. COVID-19 is a huge opportunity for digital espionage and we're going to see that in just continuing in the years ahead. Thanks very much Prem, we'll be back after this short break. There is plenty more to come in the show, so stay with us. I'd just like to take this moment to say that the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime are across social media. Just search for the Global Initiative and you'll find us. You can also visit our website, which is www.globalinitiative.net, where you can find in-depth reports and analysis in subjects as far-ranging as ISIS antiquities trafficking in Iraq, to human smuggling, to wildlife crime as well as the latest COVID crime watch. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Impact Coronavirus and Organised Crime from the Global Initiative with me, Jack Megan Vickers. Today we're talking about cybercrime. You know, the internet is a wonderful thing. The possibilities are endless. The information is infinite. Almost everything you could want is at the click of a button. But there is a dark side to the internet, a very dark side. In this time of unprecedented crisis, children and adults are spending longer online at home, and one of the known COVID-related impacts is an overwhelming increase in online child sexual abuse materials. T. Hoang, an analyst here at the GI, has been looking into this for us. COVID. 19 has led to an increase in the targets of vulnerabilities in one of the most vulnerable groups online, which is children. FBI is issuing warnings to parents and teachers about the increased risk of online child sexual exploitation as more children are online or doing class and you know, schooling during the coronavirus lockdowns. So this has been even worsened with parents staying at home and stress overworked. So parents under great stress may also very happy to just let their children keep themselves entertained and quietly in their room. So without close monitoring, a child can be very quickly approached by online sexual predators just within minutes. For example, Bark, an organization providing internet monitoring app for parents, did an experiment just last year. One of the staff went undercover. So she was a 37-year-old mum and she went undercover as an 11-year-old just to expose the dangers that kids might face online or on social media platforms. So with the help of a graphic designer and photo manipulation, she could pose herself as an 11-year-old child on social media platforms like Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok and Kik. And then what happened is that within few minutes of her opening the social media accounts, she was approached by online sexual predators, which is very alarming. Europol so just published a few days ago that it received an increase in all dimensions, first in reports from the public of an online child sexual exploitation cases, also an increase in the volume of new child sexual abuse material sharing online, downloaded through the peer-to-peer sharing networks. 
one of our Tech Against Trafficking member companies. So Tech Against Trafficking is a coalition of global tech companies like Microsoft, British Telecom, AT&T, collaborating with global experts on human trafficking to help eradicate the problem using technologies. And one of our Tech Against Trafficking member companies like Microsoft has reported a rise in child sexual abuse materials shared within the corporate platform. That was T Hoang, an analyst here at the Global Initiative, and you can follow T on Twitter, T underscore Lin underscore Hoang, and look out for more on this topic in a forthcoming COVID Crime Watch brief and podcast on human trafficking. Another risk of people being bored, isolated, and killing time online is the risk that they make some new online friends. And some of those friends may not have their best interests at heart. I'm sure you've all received the dodgy emails from a West African billionaire wanting you to invest their money or suspicious mails that you've won a lottery you never knew you'd entered, or perhaps a lonely heart who's reaching out and looking for love. Cyber scamming has become a huge industry, thought to rake in hundreds of millions for fraudsters all over the world. It's often associated with Nigeria and the famous Nigerian letter, but a new hub has developed in the Caribbean island of Jamaica. Originating out of St. James and Montego Bay in West Jamaica, an area famous for its luxury cruise ships and fancy resorts, but also a hub for call centers and business processing services for US companies. Scamming evolved when call center operators began to realize that they had a gold mine of personal information, such as payroll or HR files, information that they could make money from. But since those early days of taking information from call centers, scamming has evolved into a sophisticated criminal network driven by ruthlessly violent local gangs. Joanna Callan is a researcher at the Caribbean Policy Research Institute in Kingston, Jamaica. After the scammers were no longer able to access victim profiles from call centers, they were forced to evolve their operation and how they got that information. And they turned to data brokers in the US. You might be asking, what's a data broker? Well, data brokers are entities that collect information about other people, then they sell that data onto other data brokers, companies or individuals but the thing is, these data brokers probably have no relationship with the people whose data they've been collecting, which means most people aren't even aware their data is being collected, packaged and sold on. Interestingly enough, during the course of the research, we realized that data brokering is legalized in the US and US federal law does not prohibit the collection, compilation or even the sale of consumers' personal information. Data brokers legally collect this personal information from on people from a variety of sources, everything ranging from demographic information to contact details, political affiliations, and sometimes even religion. This allowed for the legal compilation of lead lists. And they're not just used by lottery scammers in Jamaica, but for also other scams such as identity theft as well. How did scammers become part of larger organized crime networks? 
what happened was that the, the early scammers became very flashy with the money that they had earned. And so more and more local criminals or just persons generally became involved in scamming. And so you had several things happening at once. You had scammers who grouped together for their operations. You had gangs who targeted scammers and kind of absorbed the scamming operation into gang activities. But then you had gangs who realized the amount of money and profit that could be made from scamming and then kind of became involved in the activity itself. Have we seen or do we expect to see any scams related to COVID-19? I think it's too early to pick up on any COVID-related scams that might be coming out of or linked to Jamaica or even in the region per se. Lottery scamming has always been a socially distant crime. Unlike, say, robbery or murder or other crimes where victims and perpetrators physically exist in the same space, the reality is that lottery scamming has always been a socially distant crime. And so it's very hard to say at this point what kind of impact, if any at all, the virus is having on scamming. But something to consider here is that the U.S. elderly population has always been the primary target. And we see where the U.S. has put together this aid package, this welfare package, and many persons will be receiving these checks. And even for elderly persons who might be receiving these welfare checks, it's possible then that the scammers will now see an opportunity to get funds from their victims. I mean, it's a little too early to say, but, you know, this is a possible scenario that we'll actually be able to see. Thank you very much, Joanna. And you can read Joanna's report, Scamming, Gangs and Violence in Montego Bay, by clicking on the link in the summary to the show. As the impact of COVID-19 starts to affect all traditional flows of goods and services, the online world has really shown how important it is in this moment of crisis. But equally, the digital revolution has changed many traditional ways of doing business, like going to a bookshop or even for some going to the supermarket to get your shopping. Organised crime is no different. The use of digital technology in organised crime is growing and will have a profound impact on illicit markets. Lucia Bird is a senior analyst at the GI and has recently been looking into how digital technologies are being exploited by traditional organised crime networks. Lucia, as an overview, can you explain how digital technology has changed the landscape of organised crime? It's brought about changes at every step of the supply chain in illicit markets. It's shaped demand for illegal products and services. It's shaped how the criminal perpetrators communicate. And it's affected both the type of products available, the range and how these goods are purchased. For the criminals, online markets have really lowered the barriers to entry. The overheads are lower, just like legal businesses, and actually the tech skills required are often relatively limited. There's also, on the consumer's perspective, often less stigma attached with consuming and purchasing illegal products or services online. It's seen as less anonymous, people's reputations are left intact. And then we've seen big marketplaces evolve online, both on the surface web, so on Facebook, 
or even on eBay, and also on the dark net. Although the dark net we have seen is very important for some crime types. So for example, the trafficking of drugs or trafficking of people, but less important for others like the illegal wildlife trade or the smuggling of migrants, which have tended to just use surface web facilities like Facebook. And finally, the use of cryptocurrencies has really been taken on by criminal networks. This is problematic for law enforcement because they are often looking to follow the money, so to track illicit proceeds to identify the criminal networks responsible, and cryptocurrencies are extremely difficult to track. And you mentioned the difficulty law enforcement having tracking cryptocurrencies. How has law enforcement action impacted illicit online markets? So law enforcement are increasingly aware of the online markets of criminal activities and there have been quite a number of successful law enforcement operations. So for example, in 2017, there were three very successful operations taking down the three biggest darknet markets. So that was Alpha Bay, the Russian anonymous market and Hamza, which together were estimated to be up to 90% of darknet activity at the time. However, although we saw a temporary lull in darknet activity, quite quickly it just resurfaced. And what we saw was that instead of one big player or three big players stepping into the void, we had a lot of far smaller markets proliferate, which are much harder for law enforcement to track. So when there's a big target and law enforcement is successful, it just tends to fragment into smaller and smaller marketplaces, making tracking even harder. Although we have seen government schemes such as furlough around the world in an attempt to protect jobs and economies, it is likely that unemployment will rise due to COVID-19. What impact will that have on cybercrime? If we see an overall rise in unemployment, which it looks like we will see and that is predicted in the post-COVID landscape, then it is likely that we will also see an increase in cybercrime. This is particularly true where a significant proportion of the unemployment is amongst youth that have the tech skills required to turn to cybercrime. We've seen this happen in a number of countries before. In Nigeria, when the global oil prices plummeted and it was driven into an economic downturn, unemployment, particularly amongst the youth, spiked. And we also saw a notable rise in cybercrime originating from the country, including the famous Romance 419 scams. Do you think we will see those groups start to look at cybercrime as another revenue stream in the future? Of course, it depends on the particular crime type that the organised crime group specialises in. However, we can broadly segment the impact into two categories. Firstly, we might well see an increase in the use of online marketplaces by traditional organised crime groups. So either groups that had a portion of their activities online and a portion offline, or those that hadn't yet fully moved into the online space, will see that as their offline activities are complicated by new COVID movement restrictions, they may do more of their business online. But we might also see some criminal groups that were not previously involved in cybercrime activities turn to those as other existing revenue streams dry up. We've already got one particular example coming from Honduras, 
where a lot of the criminal gangs specialize in extortion. Now, in extortion, that relies on the revenue streams of the small businesses that are victims to the criminal gangs. Due to COVID restrictions in the country, all these small businesses have been forced to close and their income has been reduced to zero. Similarly, the criminal gangs can't move around freely to collect the extortion payments. So these criminal gangs have suddenly seen the revenue streams dry up and they have significant costs. They pay the living of gang members and they also maintain kingpins in jail. So they're already turning to other criminal activities to plug the gap in revenues. Now, law enforcement have already seen an increase in gang members being involved in drug trafficking offences, but they're also pointing towards a shift in the way these gangs are operating and that these gangs are starting to look at cybercrime as a possible alternative source of funding. This is particularly attractive because more of society is having to purchase their basic necessities online because they cannot purchase them in physical stores in the way that they are used to. So gangs, ever flexible, are looking for ways to monetize this trend. So here we see a criminal group that had no real presence in the cybercrime space start to consider this as the only alternative because of the way that COVID is impacting its existing operations. And so given all this, what do you believe the way forward is to combat these illicit markets? Well, firstly, it's extremely difficult. And the fight against organised crime is not one that is being won in all spaces, but it is perhaps most bleak in the space of cybercrime. But there are a few ways forward. Firstly, we need more awareness campaigns of what constitutes cybercrime on the part of consumers because often consumers appear to be not aware that what they're doing is illegal or they simply don't see the reputational harm in it. We also need to see better and more cooperation between private service providers and law enforcement and government. So social media websites or search platforms. We need to see more formalized data sharing there to enable law enforcement to be tracking down individuals that are putting up adverts for illicit products or conducting illegal products online. And then the final and more general point is, as COVID is putting a significant strain on states and law enforcement generally, it's key not to take the eye off the ball of organised criminal activities, because where they are experiencing a temporary lull, they're merely preparing to start operating again as soon as they can. And in many cases, such as in the gangs of Honduras, this might look slightly different. So intelligence here is key so that law enforcement can be ready to deal with the new shape of organised crime in the post-COVID landscape. Lucia, thank you very much for joining us today. And her report, How Digital Technologies Change the Landscape of Organised Crime, will be published in the next few weeks. Remember that you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter about coronavirus and organised crime by heading over to our website, which is www.globalinitiative.net. Don't forget that you can find the GI on social media by searching for The Global Initiative. That's all we've got time for this week. Leave a review, like, share us with your friends. Why not hit the subscribe button? Next week, we'll be talking about human trafficking. So until then, stay inside, wash your hands, be safe online, and remember, to err is human, and to blame it on a computer is even more so. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.